I'm so happy to see you all here today, and I'm so happy to co-host this event with the Miller Center. For those of you who are new to the law school, the Miller Center is a nonpartisan institute just down the road, walkable, very easily walkable, that seeks to expand understanding of the presidency, policy, and political history, and provides critical insights for the nation's governing challenges. As you can see from that description, there are many points of convergence between the law school and the Miller Center, between their mission and ours, in thinking about politics, policy, law, and governance. I have personally had a long uh, involvement with the Miller Center, almost as long as I've been here, and I've been serving as a faculty affiliate for the last number of years. Over the last several years of Dean Mahoney's deanship, we have been forging closer ties with the Miller Center. We've had several jointly sponsored conferences, faculty from one uni unit participating in events at the other, and increasingly students uh, attending wonderful Miller Center events and Miller Center attendees coming to the law school. I'm delighted to continue that collaboration and to deepen it in the coming years. I'm also delighted and honored to introduce today's speakers. Professor Nakbar, who will be our interviewer, as it might be called, is the Joseph W. Dorn Research Professor of Law here at the University of Virginia Law School. He's also a senior fellow in our Center for National Security Law. He received his AB from the University of Illinois and his JD from the University of Chicago and afterward clerked for Judge Frank Easterbrook of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. He uh, worked in private practice before joining the faculty here in 2001. His research is wide-ranging. It looks at regulation and regulatory systems in a number of contexts, including intellectual property, antitrust, and communications law. More relevant to today's conversation, he has worked extensively in the field of national security, focusing in particular on detention law and policy and the role of legal institutions in counterinsurgency and stability operations. He serves, actually, as a judge advocate in the U.S. Army Reserve, which I don't know which was the cause and which was the effect of his interest in national security, uh, but he has certainly uh, used that role well. He is the principal editor and contributor for the first three editions of the Rule of Law Handbook, A Practitioner's Guide, and he served in Jerusalem and the West Bank as legal advisor and security justice program manager for the Office of the U.S. Security Coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Professor Nachbar will be talking today with our distinguished guest and alum, Thomas Donnellan. Mr. Donnellan received his undergraduate degree from Catholic University and his law degree here at the University of Virginia. He is currently the vice chair of the international law firm of, of O'Melveny and Myers, and he serves on the firm's gov global governing committee. Mr. Donlin, as you know, I'm sure, and it's why this room is so packed, has had a long and distinguished career in government. No offense, Professor Nakbar. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Donlin has worked closely with and advised three presidents. First position uh, was in the Carter administration in 1977. He later served as Assistant Secretary of State and Chief of Staff at the U.S. Department of State during the Clinton administration. He has since then served President Barack Obama in numerous capacities. During the 2008 campaign, Mr. Donilon headed President Obama's general election debate participation effort, uh, preparation effort, excuse me, and then chaired the Obama-Biden transition at the U.S. Department of State. 
He later served as assistant to the president and principal deputy national security advisor. He oversaw the White House's international economics, cybersecurity, and international energy efforts, and served as the president's personal emissary to a number of world leaders. Mr. Donlin was also appointed by the president to chair the Commission for Enhancing National Cybersecurity, and most recently served as the national security advisor to the president. Mr. Donnell is currently serving, as of about a month ago, as co-chair of Hillary Clinton's transition team. So there may be, or may not, but there may be another presidential administration in his future. Uh, Mr. Donlin has received numerous awards for his service, the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, the National Intelligence Distinguished Public Service Medal, the Department of Justice Medal for the Distinguished Public Service, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Joint Distinguished Civilian Service Award, and the CIA's Director's Award. I thought about not saying them all, but you can't not say them all, right? They're from all different aspects of the government, uh, which have seen fit to honor Mr. Donlin. He's also a Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a non-resident senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, a distinguished fellow at the Asia Society, a member of the Center on Global Energy Policy Advisory Board at Columbia University, a member of the U.S. Defense Policy Board and the Central Intelligence Agency's External Advisory Board. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Aspen Strategy Group, and an honorary member of the Brookings Institution Board of Trustees. As you can see, Tom's areas of expertise and service are as wide-ranging as they are critically important, and he has been honored and included in virtually every sector of the national security community. We are so proud that he is our graduate, and we are delighted that he has come here today to share his perspective with all of us. And I leave it to the two Toms. Thank you. Well, first, let me say thank you so much for making time in what is uh, a very busy and has recently become an even busier schedule uh, to come back to the law school. We're always happy to see our alums come back, and uh, we're, we're happy to welcome you back home. So thank you so much for taking the time to come. Great. Well, it's great to, great to be here. Um, thank you, Dean, for the great introduction. Um, I never had a bad day here, uh, at least one that I can remember. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place. Um, you know, you remember the community here, uh, which is really a special place. You remember um, the, uh, the teaching, uh, which is always a, a characteristic of, the, of, the, of this law school. Uh, and I think that everything I've done in my life, uh, in my professional life, really has its roots in the training that I got here. Uh, and I also have some of my best friends from my graduating class. I have two classes here, but it took me four years to get through here, by the way. Uh, I, <laughs> I have an original, and I come to reunions for both. Uh, I have an original class in 1984, and then I took a year off to do the, uh, the Mondale campaign uh, and came back and graduated finally in 1985, so it was terrific to be here. Uh, I also served for a number of years as, on the Board of Trustees at the Miller Center, uh, so it's just terrific to, uh, to be here. You know, as I sit here, I, I, I can still hear the voices of the teachers that I had. I had really great teachers from, you know, Bob Scott to Saul Levermore to Richard Bonney, Dick Merrill, Graham Lilly, Lillian Bevere, you know, just these great Great teachers have had a spectacular impact on my life. I know your professors will have a similar impact on yours. So it's terrific to be here. Well, uh, so note to the foundation, right? Two different uh, reunion solicitations. So I'm going to launch in yeah. um, because uh, we have a lot of ground to cover. And, and 
uh, because you've had experience in so many different areas, I really want to try to, to get a, a, a broad conversation. Um, we could really spend all day just about one topic, right, uh, about national security challenges facing the next president. Um, there are plenty of them. Uh, I was wondering if you might be able to talk to us about the different kinds of challenges that you think are going to face the next president in, in the national security scene. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the, the current world scene, right, is characterized by an unusually large number of unstable and volatile situations. Uh, you know, my former colleague John Brennan, the CIA director, gave a speech uh, last November where he noted that the number of unstable and volatile situations, right, the sheer number, kind of as a quantitative matter, were as, it was as large today uh, as it had only been twice since World War II. Uh, and the period of decolonialization in the 1960s, and then right after the breakup of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, so if the world seems uh, like it has a, a large number of volatile and unstable situations, if it seems that way to you, it's because it's true, uh, I think, as a, as, a fa as a factual matter. You know, Tom, you asked the question about the, the challenges that the next president faced maybe in terms of categories, right, that we can, we can talk about. Um, and we can talk about each of them, go around the world if you want to talk about each of them. But in terms of categories, I'd lay out four or five, right? Um, one is, and this you know, may sound uh, odd coming from a former national security advisor, but it's at the core, I think, of the challenges for the President of the United States and, frankly, the leaders of the Western democracies, right? Which is a folk, continued focus on economic growth and more inclusive growth. Uh, this is, there aren't, there aren't a lot of iron laws in history, uh, but one of them, I think, is that uh, a nation's diplomatic and military primacy is absolutely dependent on its economic vitality. Uh, and that has to be the top priority for the next president of the United States is to continue this. And I think it's the priority for the, really for the West uh, is to continue and have more inclusive, uh, more inclusive growth. We had some good news out of the Census Bureau reports yesterday on um, uh, uh, income rising in the United States at a fairly good clip over the last year. But we're still not back to where we were just before the Great, the great Recession, right? And it still needs to be more inclusive. And we've had an extended recovery here. And there, there are going to be challenges to keep, it, to keep it going. I think that's the number one national security challenge uh, for the next president. You know, the second, I think, category would be in the counterterrorism area. Uh, you know, we've made uh, quite a bit of progress against the, you know, the initial threat that we had from al-Qaeda, uh, the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and uh, we've, we've, we've leveled you know, really some strategic defeats against al-Qaeda, right? And it's a much uh, shrunken organization and much less of a threat than it was. But the counterterrorism threat itself more broadly has evolved and metastasized uh, and presents a number of continuing challenges, as you know, uh, to the United States uh, and to the world generally. Uh, you know, it, it currently arises mainly out of the Middle East, uh, where we've seen, I don't know what you think, but my, my characterization is I think we've seen the breakdown of the Arab state, right? Uh, the states that were put together, some of them more artificially than others, after World War II by the Europeans in the wake of the, when the Ottoman Empire fell apart in the wake of World War I, right? That state system is collapsing, right? And you have a swath of ungoverned space that goes really from Libya to Afghanistan with on and out, you know, out and out failed states in places like Libya and Iraq to some extent, and certainly in Yemen and tragically in Syria. The Syrian civil war is in its fifth year. The place I'm really worried about the terrorism threat, and I'll, I'll go through this quickly, is in Europe. Uh, you know, uh, and there are challenges in Europe, right? They're, 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 that, are, that are, I think, more challenging than we have in the United States. Proximity. You know, you can drive from Syria to Europe. You saw the bombers in, um, uh, in Paris and Belgium last year, right? Uh, went back and forth to Syria like they were on holiday, you know. Uh, second, say, proximity. 
Second, you have really serious assimilation problems in Europe that you don't have in the United States. And uh, it's a very serious, uh, very serious problem. You know, the, the perpetrators, again, of the, of the Brussels and the Paris attacks were not uh, attackers from Syrians or Iraqis, right, or Afghanis, right, or Pakistanis, right? They were Europeans. They were second and third generation Europeans who had grown in these isolated, grown up in these isolated places. So you have proximity, you have assimilation issues, and you have coordination issues, uh, which time you know about. And I, I'm very worried about the lack of coordination against this threat uh, to Europe. And the last piece is you have foreign fighters issues. So ISIS is a unique uh, organization. 35,000 members of the ISIS uh, ranks were not from Iraq or Syria. They were foreign fighters, right, who came in to, to, to jihad, right? And they will either be killed, right, or they'll go home. And five or 6,000 of them are Europeans, right? And I, don't, I, I worry that Europe has to get much more serious about dealing with this problem. The third area, I think, a category, is, an, is a new category to some extent, right, uh, which is the reemergence of great power competition uh, and some areas of conflict. And that's mainly about Russia. Uh, for 25 years after the fall of the Soviet uh, Empire, the United States and the great powers had con generally constructed and productive relationships. Right? That ended with Putin coming back into office, frankly. Uh, he's taken Russia in a different direction for lots of reasons to we which we can discuss. These concepts of uh, balance of power and uh, zero-sum outcomes and uh, spheres of influence are very real concepts for him. Uh, and I think it's a real challenge. I think he, that we, we, we undertook an effort over the course of, since the fall of the Berlin, Berlin Wall, since the fall of the Soviet Empire, to integrate Russia into the political and security organizations of the West. Putin's not interested in integration. He's interested in something else. You, know, you can have a very busy 15 or 16 hour day every day just getting through your inbox, right? And if you do that, right, as a senior national security executive, right, you're gonna fail. Uh, because you're not going to be on offense, you're not going to be taking the priorities that the nation has and pursuing them in a systematic and concerted way. So you have to struggle with that, right? Because you can have, as I said, a very full day. Every day you can walk in, right, you know, and say, you know, uh, I've just gotten my intelligence briefing and here are six problems that we have to react to today. Um, and that's not, the, you, you have to be better than that. And the way to be better than that is to be clear on what your goals are, right, you know, and to structure time and attention by the government on those. So a couple of examples of that. Uh, you know, we had, obviously, when, when President Obama came into office, we had, you know, a number of conflicts around the world we were dealing with. We had 175, 180,000 troops uh, uh, deployed in combat uh, areas around the world. Um, and that obviously had to take a tremendous amount of attention uh, by the president and his senior, uh, his senior advisors. Uh, but we also had a number of challenges, economic, um, and geopolitical that we wanted to address. And so an example of that is our so-called rebalance to Asia, which I had a you know, lot to do with. Uh, and that arose out of a discussion and an analysis during the transition where we asked ourselves, where are we over-invested and where are we under-invested in the world? We determined we were over-invested in military operations in the Middle East and South Asia, and we were way under-invested in Asia, across every dimension, diplomatic, military, economic, mind share, doctrine. Uh, and we were determined to fix that, right? Now, if you had just been dealing with your inbox every day, you never would have gotten to it, right? You know, because that's not, that wasn't an emergency. It may be the most important thing we do in the 21st century, right? You know, because that's where the, a lot of the history of the 21st century is going to be written. You have to structure it. You have to announce it. You have to take time. What I do as National Security Advisor is to take time every single week, right, where you force yourself, right, to spend a couple hours uh, directing interagency groups on 
meeting metrics as you move along that. Nonproliferation is another example of that that we did, but you have to structure your time, otherwise you will get, you will get overwhelmed with, the, with being reactive and the, uh, and the inevitable full overflowing inbox. Um, so speaking of inboxes, yeah. uh, they're, in the, they're a little bit in the news these days. Um, uh, it seems like the distinction between um, you know, distant threats and domestic threats yeah. is really no finer at some level than, than when it comes to cybersecurity. And you're the chair of the President's Commission on Cybersecurity. Uh, can you tell us uh, about the commission a little bit and its, sure. its work and the types of threats that you're being asked to address and, and the kinds of recommendations that you're doing? Yeah, well, the recommendations I can't, I, I have to see, right? We have 12 members That's of the commission, right? Yeah, right, yeah. So. We have to see how that goes, right? But the, uh, uh, so the purpose of the commission really was this, is that uh, um, we spent an awful lot of time on cybersecurity during the course of the last two administrations, uh, President, Bush 40, uh, President Bush 43 and President Obama. Um, the challenges continue to evolve, though, uh, and we have a number of things that we need to do kind of at a basic level. And the idea of this commission was really to present the next president with a roadmap for the next five or ten years, essentially to be the first transition memo, uh, uh, we hope, coming out of, uh, coming out of the uh, Obama administration to the next, to the next administration. So that's, kind of, that's the concept. Uh, the threats, um, I think I talk about it this way. Uh, We've spent a lot of energy, time, money on cybersecurity, but the threat, I think, still continues to evolve and is more pervasive, and it is more sophisticated, coming from more sources. Um, and we can talk about the various sources of the, uh, of the, of, of the threat, you know, coming from nation states uh, who can do, are interested in cyber for a number of reasons, right? Espionage, war fighting, theft of intellectual property, destruction, and information warfare. And we've seen each of those, by the way, as we, over the last few years as you've gone through. And we can talk about the information warfare at the, if you want, which is kind of a, a, a Russia-specific kind of a problem. Uh, you have criminals uh, who are engaged in trying to or engage in cybersecurity uh, breaches for profit. You have then threats that, uh, to, your, to your entities, which are really important to focus on, if you have, which is you have the weakest link, and weakest link is always going to be your um, the, the, your, your weakest link you have to focus on. So you have vendors, right, in your organization. Um, you have malicious insiders. You know, the, it's interesting, the two, the big, two biggest um, uh, thefts of classified information in the history of the United States, right, was WikiLeaks, right, and Snowden. In neither case was a foreign power penetrating our networks. In both cases, we had a malicious insider, right, uh, that, and we had failed security to deal, deal with that, right. And last is your own employees. You know, 80% of cyber breaches could be prevented by engaging in really quite half a dozen simple cyber hygiene steps, right? So we're going to be looking at all those things to try to enhance our, uh, enhance our, our security. You know, the last of these on, inform on information warfare, I'll just pause for a second on. So you've had in the news the last um, a few weeks, right, uh, hacks of the Democratic National Committee and affiliated organizations, right? Not just theft, right, uh, but also stealing it and releasing it in public for clear purposes, right? It's a, it's a, that's, an, that's an important dynamic there. Uh, you've had uh, reports in the news of, uh, of breaches at state election, uh, state election uh, um, entities around the country. You've had reports most recently of uh, uh, the uh, anti-doping anti organization at the Olympics having uh, uh, files released. And you had just yesterday uh, reports of uh, Secretary uh, Powell's uh, private emails being released. Um, uh, there's been private sector groups who have said that the, and we'll start with the DNC, right, said that there were entities associated with Russian intelligence who were engaged in these breaches. Uh, and the 
groups who are doing this, uh, you know, uh, uh, CrowdStrike is an organization who made, that, who made that analysis. That's a credible organization. The Russians, of course, denied that they engage in cyber attacks and that they try to engage in affecting elections in foreign countries. Of course, both those things are manifestly not true, right? And, uh, you know, we can track Russian engagement in cyber, cyber breach from Estonia through Georgia up through uh, Ukraine. Uh, and engagement in trying to affect elections in Europe is something that they engage in quite directly, in my, my judgment. So their statements uh, are just not true, right? That's uh, the first point. And, and again, because our government has not announced attribution yet, right? But I'll make, doing an end, I'm making some analytical points, right? Uh, and the, uh, the next point you'd make is that uh, Russia has engaged aggressively in information warfare. Uh, and you see that in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine, uh, where these were covert operations, if you will, to try to uh, take territory, right, take uh, property, and a lot of this, and violate borders, and a lot of this had to do with information warfare. Uh, I think this is an important part of Russian activities around the world, and something that's a real challenge for, uh, for us. Uh, as I said earlier in my remarks, I think we're in a very different posture with Russia right now. I think that Putin's not interested in the integration phase. It's a much more actively hostile and confrontational uh, posture that we're in with the Russians right now, and we have to address it. Sort of on, a, on a more practical level, yeah. right? Um, there are a lot of news stories about cyber threats. We've already yeah. talked about a number of them, and uh, it's hard for us to see cyber breach, right? Until something happens, and so I think that that you know we don't really know which ones to take seriously and which ones to not. Um, uh, you know, how can we how can we sort of sort how can us people like us, yeah. uh, just individuals, sort sort of the real threats uh, from from the well, a couple of things. You know, you're, uh, our entire lives now are becoming online, right? You know, so this is a challenge for the government, it's a challenge for businesses, and it's a challenge for individuals, right? As we increasingly put our life uh, mm -hmm. online, right, our, our personal life, our economic life, right, you know, um, our personal records, our health uh, records, right, are online. We all have an obligation, I think. And one of the things I hope our commission does, Tom, is to really push forward a public awareness campaign. We have a history in this country of quite successful public awareness campaigns, right, that have taken on challenges like seatbelts and smoking and a uh, number of other things, right, which we can look to in terms of public service campaigns. I hope we can, out of this commission, do some of that, right, because it really is on individuals to have a mindset of security because you're really, it is your personal stuff at, uh, at, uh, at risk, and you can also put at risk your organization, right? You know, so I think it's, a fo it's really a focus for... Um, it's a focus for all of us uh, going, uh, going forward. And the last thing I'll say, in the, in the space for this, in the, you know, in the security realm, we would say the attack surface, right, is expanding dramatically. Why is that? Because we are about to enter an era of the Internet of Things, which is the Internet involved in our physical lives every day, right, with hundreds of devices and sensors, right, everything from you know, turning on and off your air conditioning and heating and your toaster at home, right, to your automobile. Uh, and these are vulnerabilities, right, you know, that we have. And I'm very worried that we are behind in terms of thinking through privacy and security aspects and, and policy aspects of how we protect ourselves as we just dramatically expand this attack surface, right? Uh, it'll bring tremendous benefits to society. Uh, but you think about these, these, these uh, uh, products, they cost a few bucks to make, right? And if we don't think up front about... Uh, as a policy matter, how to get privacy and security baked in at the beginning, it won't get baked in because there's not enough financial incentive to do so. So my microwave is part of the attack surface. Yeah, it could be. Well, think about it, right? You know, uh, uh, you know, it's a part of an overall part of an overall uh, uh, network, right? Uh, 
uh, uh, you know, serious privacy concerns, right? You know, and of course these attacks, right? You know, are most malicious if you and if you engage in them, kind of in multiple, you know, kind of multiple simultaneous attacks. So knowing what you know yeah. now, right? What keeps you awake at night when you think about cybersecurity? Well, it's it, I think that uh, getting ahead of the curve. I think a, a couple of things. One is getting the basics done. Uh, I'd like to have the federal systems become a model and not a problem, right? And I think that we need to take some steps to do that. Uh, I worry, as I said, about the so-called attack surface expanding dramatically without appropriate policy and technical attention uh, uh, to it. Uh, and uh, it's becoming a new domain in terms of potential conflict. You know, we have air, sea, right, uh, and uh, uh, land, right, uh, uh, domains that we've been engaged in as part of our defense for a long time. And cyber has become a new domain, and every bit is important. We talked about that with respect to, with respect to even the counterterrorism. You know, these uh, uh, threat a, a group like ISIS is is, is as uh, you know, quite dangerous online as well as in the in the physical world. So, um, I you know, I say I, I wake up uh, about a lot of things, right? You know, but the uh, that's one of them. Um, so uh, maybe a slightly more practical. I've lived in a very dark world for a long time, yeah. right? In a very dark place for a long time. So it's. Actually, it's actually good to be here and give a presentation someplace with natural light. You know? <laughs> I don't get to do that very often. <laughs> yeah, right, you know? uh, so a more, slightly more practical question for uh, at least a number of the uh, audience members here. Uh, you know, you're chair of the President's Cyber Security Commission and you're co-chair of Henry Clinton's uh, Presidential Transition Team. At the same time, you're the vice chair of a major international law firm. Yeah huge public service commitments yeah. uh, that you're balancing with your commitment to the firm. How, do, how, does, that, how does that work for a practice? Well, uh, I mean, a couple of things we made on that, points we made on that. Number one is my firm, O'Melveny & Myers, has a long tradition of public service and, uh, and, and supporting that. Uh, you know, I, uh, as I said earlier, was involved in politics for a long time, right? Uh, and indeed, before I came to the University of Virginia, was uh, involved in, uh, with President Carter, but not in national security, but in, in political. I managed the convention in 1980 in New York City. Um, and my turn towards, uh, my turn towards uh, national security took place because I, I was recruited to my law firm by Warren Christopher, uh, who ended up being my law partner, and then, of course, Secretary of State, and I was his chief of staff. And he was part of a long tradition at our firm that included himself and William Coleman and others who were great lawyers and um, uh, uh, I mean, terrific public servants, and it's, it's part of the culture of my, of my law firm, the first point. Uh, the second is uh, you have to, you gotta, and this is important, I think, for lawyers. Lawyers are not great at this, frankly. Uh, you've got to purposefully manage things. You have to think affirmatively about management. How do you manage your workload, right? Uh, what does your team look like? Uh, do you have the right people? And so I think one of, the, one of the real great benefits I've had is being able to kind of build teams of the right people who can help me with these things. Um, and I guess third is you have to uh, marry the right spouse, right, you know, <laughs> or be with the right person because it's a, uh, that's a uh, uh, big part of this uh, as well. My wife uh, is Kathy Russell, who's the U.S. Ambassador at large at the State Department for Women's and Girls Issues. Uh, so we both kind of come up through these issues for a long time together. Wow, so there's not much going on in the house. <laughs> Are yeah, things seem fine, yeah. you know, so far. You know, as best I know, as best I know. I can't even get to soccer practice. <laughs> right, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, so, um, my wife's on her way today to Saudi Arabia, uh, which will be an interesting trip for her. Yeah. Uh, maybe we could have her down. Yeah, she'd be great. 
so from your vantage point. She's another lawyer. She was the uh, deputy assistant, deputy associate attorney general and, she, and staff director of the Judiciary Committee. Did she go to UVA? She went to uh, GW. Yeah. 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 Um, so from your vantage point as national security advisor, could you tell us just a little bit? I know it's a very complicated process, yeah. but specifically with regard to the role of lawyers in the national yeah. security policy process, because again, a lot of the students here have an interest in that area, and, and it's a field that they're likely to go into. Yeah. I think the role of lawyers is really critical. And, and so, the, the, so the process, uh, let me describe it a bit, because the, the current national security process in place in the government is based on uh, a, 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 an organization put together by uh, Brent Scowcroft and Bob Gates uh, during the Bush 41 administration. Uh, and it essentially is a series of ascending committees uh, where uh, issues will be raised at the, at, at, at the kind of the assistant secretary level for the um, uh, uh, policy committee meetings. And then they'll get raised up to a deputies committee, which is the deputy secretaries of the of uh, the government. That's really the COPE. That's really kind of the chief operating uh, committee in the government. That's chaired by the deputy national security advisor. I chaired that for a year and a half. We had 700 meetings of that uh, committee uh, during that period when we came in. And then there's a principals committee, which is the cabinet, right? Uh, this chaired by the national security advisor. Well, that was an interesting uh, group for me. As I looked down the table, it would be uh, Biden, Clinton, Gates, Panetta, Petraeus, Holbrook. It was kind of an interesting shy crowd, as you can imagine, right? You know? You're at the head of that table. Uh, at the head of that table for, 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 for several years. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, and that's the group, that's the principal advisory group to the president. Uh, that's the group who will go through kind of the, the, the uh, deal with the, uh, the toughest issues and make recommendations to the president. And then on the top of that is the National Security Council, which is written into law, and that's chaired by the president. Uh, those meetings are less frequent, obviously, than the meetings of the other groups I described. But that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the, the, the uh, stair step, if you will, of um, uh, how, how foreign policy and national security gets made in the United States. And then there are others, offshoots of that, who will deal with things like counterterrorism threats and cyber threats and things, uh, and things, along, those, and things along those lines. So the role of the National Security Advisor is to oversee that process uh, and to chair the principals, uh, principals Committee and to oversee the staff that supports that, uh, supports that process and the uh, uh, and the president. That's one of the roles of the National Security Advisor. Uh, the roles of lawyers uh, is, uh, is, um, is absolutely critical. You know, the, the law is, this, is the source, obviously, of, of kind of your left and right uh, lanes on things, right? But also, you know, in our society, it's the source of, the, uh, of our uh, values. You know, that's the, our values are represented in the law, right? And that's what the lawyers present uh, in, uh, in, these policy, in these policy debates. Now, I'll say two or three practical things about that, the way we, we've done it, is that since the Tower Commission report after Iran-Contra, there's, a, there's a, a legal advisor to the NSC, to the National Security Council, and that's an important role, and it's now, it's, it's, it's now baked into the system after the Tower Commission report, very important. Secondly, there's a lawyers committee that meets regularly uh, in the government, and they're the chief lawyers from the, from the chief international lawyers from the departments and agencies uh, who will consider issues put to them by the other committees. So the principal's committee will be chaired by the National Security Advisor and will say there's a legal issue here, right? You know, we need to put it to the lawyer's committee and they'll report back to us. The third thing I'd mention about the role of lawyers is that I would never have a meeting without having uh, our National Security Advisor lawyer in the room. Uh, uh, ev almost every policy I can recall us having to develop had legal aspects to it, uh, particularly during the, a period of conflict 
there are a number of issues of first impression uh, that have to be addressed. Uh, and so every single meeting I would insist on having uh, our, our council there, even in the smallest meetings, which during my tenure were the Bin Laden meetings, right? You know, so we met you know, from beginning in August of 2010 when the intelligence came forward, which the intelligence community thought was the best evidence we had in terms of the location of Bin Laden since we lost him in Tora Bora in the early 2000s. Uh, and we had you know, a series of meetings that went from August of 2010 until May of 2011 when we undertook the operation. There were many, many legal issues, right? Uh, and uh, we had our counsel, uh, who's now the Deputy National Security Advisor, Avril Haines, uh, in every one of those meetings, no matter how small they were. And of course, that was one of the great examples of actually keeping a secret, right? Because we, uh, two, two, by the way, two, two things to that, how to keep a secret, right? One is we were very low tech, <laughs> right? And uh, delivered uh, the papers around uh, by courier. Uh, and second, I did learn a lesson, which I've talked about, uh, I have a separate talk on this, which is if you want to keep a secret, don't tell anybody, right? <laughs> so that's the, uh, but, the, the, but we had, even in that smaller group, we had, we had uh, lawyers. Um, one last point on this is that in the, this administration, of course, the president's a lawyer, uh, and who taught uh, as an adjunct at the University of Chicago, to you know, uh, constitutional law for many years, uh, and, you know, is a uh, quite uh, a sharp lawyer. Uh, and considers himself a lawyer. So uh, from my perspective, having uh, been a lawyer was actually a really important aspect of my ability to kind of interact with him, I think, in an, in an, on an effective, an effective basis. I think also that the training you get as a lawyer, I, I don't think I would have been anywhere near as effective as a public uh, policy person without legal training. Uh, the discipline, the writing, the attention to detail, uh, the ability to articulate and advocate, you know, uh, analyze. Um, uh, I think are absolutely, absolutely critical. You know, last thing I'll say about this uh, is that one of the jobs of the security advisor is to deliver the daily um, uh, intelligence briefing to the president, the president's daily briefing. I did that about 850 mornings. Uh, and that's essentially a, it's an oral argument every morning, right? You know, you kind of said, you're not standing up, you sit down and you essentially have to, you have an audience you're trying to communicate with uh, and you need to do it crisply. And I think that the legal training that, uh, that I received here and throughout my career was absolutely essential. Well, I want to leave uh, some time for questions afterwards. And I know some of the students will have to go off to those classes. But I mean, you've anticipated part of my, my last question, which is, you know, how do you, how do you, you weren't really ostensibly in a lawyer's job, no. right? You, you know, and, and I think that our students often think of themselves as they're going to be educated here and then move off to lawyer's jobs. How do you, you know, you talked a little bit about your experience, but how do you see law school, you know, legal training and your experiences at law school? affecting non-legal jobs, you know, like yours or like others you've seen, I guess the president included. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I think that, as I said, kind of the, the, the attributes that you develop in terms of as, as a lawyer are important. The skills, right, which we talked about, right? I think the way of thinking, uh, you know, the ability to analyze uh, and to take apart problems carefully uh, is really critical. You know. Um, uh, it is really easy to be sloppy in policy making. You know, you kind of come in with a set of assumptions, right, you know, um, and you, you move from that without challenging them. And if you're not careful, you don't, you don't work on the implementation piece and all its elements. Uh, and I think a legal, kind of legal training, paying attention to the details, right, you know, uh, and analytically saying, all right, what am I missing? You know, what's between the lines here, right, I think is really important. Uh, and last, I don't think, uh, in public policy, particularly as you come up through the ranks, the ability to write clearly 
is absolutely, it's, an, it's a huge difference maker, right, in terms of your uh, success, I think, in the policy, uh, in, the, in the policy world. Uh, and, and the sheer discipline, you know, uh, the ability to carefully read something and think about it is, that's, the, that's something that's unique to the legal profession. Uh, and I also think that having a, um, understanding why the laws are there, right, you know, in terms of re reflecting our values, I think is also a, an important part of it. There's, just, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very distinct attitude, I think, that lawyers and skill set that lawyers bring. We, had, we have in the, in the government today great lawyers. I mean, the, the lawyers committee we had, you know, David Martin from this faculty uh, was on that, uh, was on that uh, committee and working on uh, uh, homeland security issues, and Harold Coe from the Yale Law School, and David Barron is now in the First Circuit. I mean, it was an incredible group of, of uh, uh, Trevor Morrison is the dean at NYU now. Uh, these were all members of the all members of that, of that lawyers committee, and they brought uh, tremendous value. Uh, and particularly, I said, I'll finish up on this, with this president, who would ask you legal questions, right? Say, well, you know, who told you that? And where did you get that from, right? You know, or did you read this carefully enough? Or are we all right legally here uh, on this? Uh, so it's a, um, an important skill set. Um, I do want to open it up to questions. Uh, Well, that's not true. So the, uh, a, cu a, couple, a couple of points. Uh, one is this, is that, so the roots of the pivot, right, the, the rebalance to Asia, whereas I said earlier, which was an analysis that said we were underinvested in Asia uh, at the very time when you had one of the most spectacular economic growth, one of the most spectacular development social stories in history going on, with the economies growing at 10 times the, the economies of the, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and so, and at the very same time that's going on, we were by necessity at that point focused on our military operations in Middle East and South Asia at the exact same time. So China's growth and Asia's growth is going like this and we are focused right here and it's pushing past us. Uh, and so we asked ourselves, as you would when you came in as a new administration, where are we overinvested, underinvested? We determined we were underinvested in Asia, first point. The second point is that what's the foundation? What are the elements of the rebalance, right? First and foremost are alliances. Uh, alliances, you know, if you think about this debate about American decline, you know, when you do a balance sheet of strengths and weaknesses the United States has, it rarely gets mentioned, but one of the great assets that the United States has is a global system of alliances that no other country has. And that's the foundation, really, of our work around the world, particularly in Asia. And today, uh, I think the fact is that our alliances in Asia are much stronger than they were eight years ago. Uh, if you look at the popularity of the United States in places like Japan, South Korea, and elsewhere, um, I, think it's a, uh, I think it's a fact that, in fact, that we have deepened these alliances quite, quite substantially. Um, uh, next, of course, is China, uh, which is part of the rebalance in terms of engagement with China. I think the relationship with China is now, you know, I think uh, constructive and stable, but we have challenges going forward. I think the principal security challenge in Asia that we have is North Korea. Uh, and I think that North Korea could be the first crisis for the next, for the next president. And that's going to be a real test for the U.S.-China relationship. Um, so I, 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 dis I disagree. I think there has been, you know, by 2020, 60% of our air and naval assets will be in Asia, right? That's a pretty substantial turn when you talk about the scale of something the United States does. 
We have deepened alliances uh, in Asia, I think, pretty substantially. And we've had a pretty important engagement with China over the last eight years, which has allowed us to do some positive things, including on climate and other, uh, and other challenges. So I think that um, now we have had pushes and pulls, right? We're a global power with global interests, so we get pulled and pushed on things, um, as you would imagine. But I think we've had a pretty steady, pretty steady focus in Asia. And you saw the president's just taking his 12th or 13th trip there uh, last, uh, last week. I do worry, as I said, on the security side about North Korea, where we have a regime that is moving towards uh, having multiple nuclear weapons. They claim they can miniaturize them and put them on top of missiles that can reach the United States, and that's not going to be an acceptable circumstance for the president. So, yes, pushes and pulls, uh, but I think uh, fairly steady progress would be my analysis. Uh, not perfect, and we have, you know, we have some challenges. The new leader of the Philippines, for example, you know, is an interesting character. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, you always have these things, right? You know, but I think it's, you've got to take the long view and look at the, at the kind of the overall investments. And I think it's been, it's been pretty substantially shifted. And I, hope it, I hope it continues. You have a lawyer's ability for understatement. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in terms of the obvious results. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Hi. Well, it's an, important, it's an important and good question. So it, it depends on what, what these are, right? I mean, what are, so what are drone strikes, right? A, a drone, right, an unmanned uh, aircraft, right, is a, uh, is a uh, weapon. Uh, and it's a weapon that's in our arsenal right now. And I think, frankly, you're going to see unmanned aircraft, right, uh, and unmanned surface and underwater ships, right, become a more important and increasing part of our, uh, of our um, uh, Military hardware, right, and our doctrine. So I don't. I think that if you think about it that way, you know, uh, it, it's, impor it's important. It's an important perspective to have on it, right? Uh, second is, you know, now we can move into you know the policy areas around it, right? Um, I think that when you think about it, also, you know, drones uh, again as a weapon of war, right, are in many ways obviously advantageous for the United States. Uh, it is uh, uh, less threatening for our, uh, men and women, right? You know, in, uh, in terms of threat uh, and risk, uh, you are able to engage, and as a matter of laws of war, uh, able to engage in much more precise uh, uh, strikes with uh, less risk and damage to non-combatants. The proportionality, I think, is actually a, uh, a, uh, an important part of, uh, of this. Um, so I think it's going to be an important part of our arsenal. Now, um, you asked, the next level of this, of course, would be, what about the use of drones outside war zones? Right, which I think is what, what you were getting to, and that's a, that's a hard that's a hard question. It has been an important tool that our military has used to uh, push back against uh, 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 terrorist groups around the world again, and it's uh, you know I think an important tool, frankly, uh, because it can be done with some precision. Uh, you know, there are lots of questions about where uh, and under what circumstances would we. And I think you know the president has laid out a number of. of uh, principles to guide our efforts in this in this respect, including that there has to be a threat against the United States and we and the country where the terrorist threat is, um, uh, either that country won't or can't deal with the threat. Uh, and that's, I think that's consistent with international with international law. I think the more interesting question on drones is, from a policy perspective, not more interesting and interesting. Another question, right, is uh, domestically, uh, where we're about to have a very big boost, I think, in the number of 
drone operations in the United States for commercial and other purposes, right, which present real security and privacy issues. So it's a complicated issue. You know, it's one that we wrestled with uh, in the uh, uh, in the uh, in the administration. Um, but I think it's an important uh, it's an important tool. Now, there's all kinds of debates, right, about whether or not you uh, you cause yourself more problems and backlash than you solve and things like that. But I think it's a as a, if you think about it as a, what it is, right? I mean, so, so you're, what are your options? If you're making a military decision, okay, and you have, you're in a war zone, for example, um, and you have the choice between taking a strike with an F-16, right, or a drone, uh, you know, you would probably undertake the strike with the drone if you had a very limited target you wanted to, and you wanted to limit damage. Uh, you would certainly be allowed in a war zone by the laws of war to undertake the strike with the, with the uh, with the manned aircraft. So these are the kinds of questions I think you have to wrestle with. So, um, you know, you would hope that uh, our, our terrorist threats are reduced, right, so that we would be able to reduce our, our reliance on these tools around, around the world. But I do think the first point I made about them, about unmanned autonomous weapons becoming a bigger part of the arsenal, I think that's going to happen. Well, I, I did identify it in Europe. As a, I think, I think that, and certainly, and I think we're better at it, frankly. Now, we have the advantage of distance, right? And we have the advantage of unity of effort. Uh, and uh, we've, put a lot of, we've put a lot into this uh, since 9-11, right? You know? No, you absolutely, I absolutely worry about it, right? Um, and, um, but we have, a, you know, I think we have in place a layered set of defenses, right? Which have been pretty effective uh, uh, that we put in place since 9-11. Uh, 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 but for sure, and I think, and uh, you know, one of the reasons I worry about Europe so much uh, is because you know we have visa, you know, visa waiver programs with Europe, where you can come to the United States without having to go in for an interview, right, from these from a European country, uh, and come to the United States without having to get a visa, right. So this is why you worry about these points of weakness, right. Uh, and so, no, I absolutely worry about it. And one of the reasons I worry about Europe so much is because I worry about a terrorist threat coming against the United States with a European passport. Uh, the next layer to that, of course, is the, is the homegrown uh, terrorist, th terrorist threat. And that's a very, that's a hard issue, you know. Um, the FBI has investigations open in all 50 states in the United States on I for ISIS-related activity. Uh, and because, as I said, this organization, ISIS, is so um, uh, able online, um, it is a threat we have to, we have to, we have to be, be very serious about dealing with. So um, I would include that in my, in my second category of counterterrorism threats. Yeah, that's a good point. Great. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so, um, so you're right. The, the, the threat that Russia has presented to Europe over the last couple of years is hybrid war threat. What do we mean by that? We mean not necessarily armies on the march, right, you know, coming across a border and taking over a country. 
but rather engaging in kind of, you know, I, I consider the, the, the Crimea annexation to be kind of a covert war kind of operation, right, where they had, you had information warfare, you had uh, um, uh, covert troops uh, to come in, right, you had groups you worked with inside the country, uh, misinformation, um, and that is, that's the threat. And what that requires on the NATO side, right, is to think about it differently and have the kinds of responses and resources available, particularly for frontline states, right, to deal with that. Uh, so that's a lot more intelligence, right, you know. It is a lot more cyber. Um, we have to think hard about deterrence in this area on cyber and with a particular threat from, from Russia and Europe. But I think it is causing a rethink at NATO in terms of capabilities and resources, particularly, again, for these frontline frontline states. The last thing you alluded to on uh, what's an attack, right, you know, uh, is, a, is a hard question. My own view is that we, we're best to probably think about the cyber attack question uh, a lot like the physical world, right, you know. Um, so uh, we wouldn't launch an attack back on a country for just espionage, right, you know, people engage in espionage. Uh, would we announce, would we launch an attack back on for theft, right, of intellectual property? Uh, we would think very hard if you had a nation state engaged in an action which, engage, which involves some level of destruction, you know, like critical infrastructure in the United States, uh, that starts to feel a lot more like an attack, right? So I think these, these, these doctrinal questions are really important to being worked through now. I think we can be informed a lot by the laws of war in the physical world on it, though. It's a great, it's a great question, particularly, I think, in terms of the NATO posture. Hi. Yeah. Yeah, I have to give you an honest answer. I haven't, uh, you know, I know that, I, I know that Senator McCain, for example, responded to it, um, um, saying that he thought that that wasn't, that, that this is basically, it, it, uh, the question, I guess, is, is that uh, um, the same person heads up the, Na the National Security Agency and Cyber Command, which is one of the combatant commands in the, uh, in the U.S. government. Um, and the question presented is whether or not to separate that person, right, and to have a military uniformed officer head up cyber command like you would have other commands in the military and, uh, and have a civilian run uh, the National Security Agency, which is essentially, you know, the, the, the chief surveillance agency, global surveillance agency uh, for, the, uh, for the United States. Um, I'd have to, you know, I'd have to think about it harder, frankly, uh, and having given it, I really haven't given it a lot of thought. Uh, uh, and uh, so I just want to, Try to follow the rules and talk about some things that I've thought about hard. I haven't thought enough about that, but that's—I mean—that's the—that's the—that's uh, uh, the issue, right? And so, uh, you know, I think that the, you know the question is: um, Are there um, inherent you know, kind of conflicts in those two roles? Uh, would we be better at either of them if we hadn't separated out? I'd have to think about it. Uh, I think I have to think about it harder than I have, frankly. So, if your rule is to not talk about something until you've thought about it hard, then you're obviously disqualified from being an academic. Yeah. So, <laughs> right, uh, yeah. So I'll take one last question, and then uh, okay. There's a ringer in the audience here. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah.
Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, the 9-11 Commission report cited that uh, as a weakness uh, in the government uh, in the 2001 period where most of the positions at the Department of Defense hadn't been filled by the time of the 9-11 attack in September of 2001. Uh, and the time it takes to get people in place has been uh, extending, right? You know, if you look back uh, over the last 40 years, it's, it really has become, I think, a very serious problem. So my own view would be that uh, we should engage with uh, the, the um, I wrote an article on this in Foreign Affairs 2002, which I can send you, that the, that the um, coming out of the 9-11 Commission report, reading this and saying, this is a real national security issue. You know, you basically you have secretaries in charge of these very large departments, and, the, and the, it's empty. Right, you know, and it's very hard actually to operate. Obviously, if you don't have people you can, uh, who you can who you can who you can work with and uh, and can execute your policies, so I would hope uh, that that the we can engage with the new congressional leadership uh, to have a set of understandings which would accelerate this process. Uh, uh, we have situations now where um, you know the I don't know actually you know, the legal advisor's office right was open for a long time right you know uh, and for no reason having to do with that particular candidate, right? you know? So I would think that um, there should be able to be a set of understandings that could be reached with the, con with the congressional leadership that would at least have some agreed upon normal time frame, right, for getting, this, uh, for getting these things done. Now, it's all not on the Congress, though. Uh, there's also, it takes way too long, I think, to get to clearances done inside the executive branch as well. So I hope we could look at both. Uh, both aspects of this and try to get uh, try to get as many people in place as quickly as possible for the new for the new administration. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, actually it's a, it's a really it's important good government uh, good government issue. Uh, well, I'm going to reiterate Mr. Moore's appreciation both for your service and for appearing today. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Great. Down. It means a huge amount to our to our students and other constituents to see uh, folks coming yeah. back to, uh, to yeah. talk to us about what we yeah. can do. Yeah, let me give one thing on public on public policy, if I might, just on the That's okay. so on the uh, you know so uh, you graduate from law school, many of you will go to work at law firms, right? You know, uh, which I you know I've been at the same law firm uh, on and off for 31 years, um, and um, there's a uh, and my advice if you're interested in public policy is to just do it, right? Is to is to you know you can you can do your job right and do it well and become a great lawyer. But if you're interested in these policy issues, you have to invest in them, right? So find ways to participate. Uh, get on the right study group, task force, right? You know, and prepare yourself for when the opportunity might arise that you could come into you could come into public service because it's a, um, you know, it's a it's just a great privilege and um, it really will enrich your life. So I would I would encourage people who are interested in public service. Yes, you have to. And you'll go day in and day out, right? You know, and you'll be doing your job, and that's important to do it as well as you can. But also, you know, take some time, right? And structure the time to uh, learn issues, think about them, uh, meet people, right, in the areas that you're interested in, uh, get involved in formal organizations, uh, so that um, when uh, you know, when the opportunity comes, that you're, you're ready to do that. The other piece of advice I would give on on this is, in addition to being a well-trained lawyer, uh, read history. Uh, you know, in the United, you know, in America, we have this phrase, you know, well, that's history, right? You know, well, the rest of the world doesn't view things this way, right? That's just not that's history, right? History is a very real thing, and I don't think you could be an effective policymaker without really understanding history either. So I would, I would read history, and read it obsessively, read it again, 
right? You know, and I think those, those are kind of some of the piece of advice that I would give people who are interested in doing the law and, uh, and public policy. Uh, that's incredibly helpful. Thanks so much for your words. I think our dean will agree with that uh, in the importance of history. And thank you again so much Thanks, for, Tom. for coming down. Okay, great. Thank you.